solve those contradictions. We are here to play in that realm of contradiction and cognitive dissonance. We are here to infect your mind. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Cognitive Dissonance Podcast. This is part two of Religion and Spirituality. We start off by exploring mystical experiences and the measurable effects that those can have on people's lives. We then transition to religion as a metaphorical truth aligned with psychological truth, that there are real phenomena that coincide with what modern medicine can tell us about the human psyche and psychology that has been enacted and embodied for thousands of years just in different terminology. We don't tackle everything in this episode, so keep an eye out for part three of Religion and Spirituality, where we're going to try and focus on the afterlife. So I hope you enjoy. I apologize it's been a while, but rest assured, we're back. All right. Religion and Spirituality, part two. Yes. Where do you want to start? Maybe. Because I know, I know we talked a lot last time about fundamentally what religion is. Right. Right. And the, the human being's natural psychological disposition to have that tradition as pre-made toolbox for how to associate with the world and navigate the world that you can adjust, you know, as, as you see it fit. Mm-hmm. Um, anything in particular you wanted to talk about? Um, I was kind of focused on like afterlife and where that came from and why, because a lot of ancient religions, it seems like they didn't really care what happened to the body, where you went, they're like, and then others really did care and sent you with things and people to help you. And it's related to religion, uh, but it's also a culture thing, I think, because a lot of people who aren't religious still like hold afterlife beliefs. Um, so maybe there. Which I, <clears throat> I think would be indicative of having some kind of religious belief Mm. right so i i don't i used to adhere to it when i was younger and i don't think i accept it as an answer anymore that whole i'm spiritual but not religious (laughs) right because that that tends to be the more i reflect on it the more it seems to me like that's the automatic response for someone that doesn't know how to answer the question of, are they religious? I agree with that because I think what I assume they mean by that is I do not fit under any organized religious label uh, or I choose not to, but I still believe everything they believe. Yeah. Right there. There might be value there. I'm uncertain as to whether there is continuity after death in some capacity mm-hmm. but i don't adhere to dogma right so this is something um maybe we can um use this as our touch point and then see if we can connect this to 
afterlife theories. Um, so in preparation for this, I did a lot of reading on Roland Griffith's um, psychology lab at Johns Hopkins, where um, oh. he studies the effects of like psilocybin and dimethyltryptamine DMT, but not in the sense of like, I mean, they, they do the psychometrics and psychopharmacologically what happens to you, right? Um, alpha and beta waves tend to be suppressed. Theta waves tend to bump up. Um, and then the, the various different parts in the serotonergic system and the dopaminergic system that it activates to make you feel good. But the reason that he looks into it and, and he makes tries to make explicitly clear in his papers is not because he's curious about what the drugs do, but because they are the facilitators for the transcendent mystical experiences that people have that permanently alter their life in some capacity. Right. So okay. he, he correlates a lot of his research with other labs that have done examinations into um, how one meaningful and mystical experience on a psychedelic, if it's meaningful and mystical, has like an 80% rate of addiction recovery right? Like people quit smoking. It's used for post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety symptoms, addiction symptoms, things like that. Um, and the way he describes it is, I was reading through one of his papers and I'm actually a little proud of myself for it. He started talking about the fundamental change and like it clicked for me, like he mentioned neuroplasticity mm. and it makes sense to me that anything that allows you to step outside of the rigidity of your cognitive structures to reevaluate them from a new perspective allows you to modify those cognitive structures, right? The architecture that we use to understand the world. Um, as long as those extra, extra dimensional perspectives, and I don't mean that as in like the whole, you're going to a different dimension, but like you have your psychological architecture if you can step one dimension out of that, then you can see what flaws might be there and how it either accurately or inaccurately describes reality. And then you can fix those. So as long as that accuracy with reality lines up with um, that increase in neuroplasticity, then you can take your years of experience within that rigid system and modify it with your new perspective to create um, new more accurate and therefore more meaningful cognitive structures so you can sort of cheat like you know you have to have a habit for like 27 days or whatever before it becomes a habit mm -hmm. you can cheat that and just do just make it a habit just make your brain think that way because you took that drug had the right shaman leading you through a uh, shaman very loosely i don't know <laughs> you know like a guru to help you um wow i could see that yeah, it's, it's i don't i don't know if it's like a cheat to build a habit or a cheat to be able to break habits because those are two different things um and what's really important to point out is again it's 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 not the introduction of 
chemicals into your neurochemistry that alters how it works that he's that's just a byproduct of what he's studying because he makes it as clear as he can that the mystical experiences that his patients describe are descriptively no different than the transcendent experiences that people have at religious sermons or religious ceremonies or association with the divine, right? You sit there and you watch a sunset and it hits you in the feels just right. Or you catch that one song on your drive to work. And just for that three minutes, for whatever reason, you're overwhelmed. And then for the rest of the day, what do you do? You ruminate on that experience, right? And it is that rumination on that experience. It is that cognitive overwhelming, so to speak, that reintroduces neuroplasticity. I see that would make sense why like that can treat depression as well I think because if you're stuck in those thought patterns like you mentioned then but it doesn't work as a one-time thing for a lot of people a lot of people have to keep going or microdosing which is kind of like going to church each week is there something too that you have to keep doing it or is the one time enough? No, his um most of his research concludes that one meaningful mystical experience has upwards of like 3 to 5 years of measurable effects. Why? That is weird. Now, th- here's the thing. I think we have to keep in mind the scale of severity. Right? Mm-hmm. So if if you're watching a sunrise and you're like, oh, this is unique and special and you get the little bit of flutters, like, yeah, you're going to have a good day or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, If you go to Roland Griffith's lab and you figuratively meet God, like, (laughs) you know, that's that's a little bit higher up there on on that echelon, right? Um, Yeah. There was... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, but I, I think that's... I think that's key because per his papers dosage didn't matter intensity of experience didn't matter depth of meaning in the experience mattered okay so you don't have to like roll around on the floor going mad yeah you don't have to like think you're an orange and try and peel your skin off type of thing right you just have to it has to be an experience in such a way that you can, it deeply matters and you can reflect on it to gain new insight, which I, I think is really neat. And this is just kind of a sidebar. Um, but the, I forget where I read it, but the human brain is capable of inferring new data even after withdrawal of the data set. So there's a study that was done where people were introduced glimpses of mathematical problems. And even like you see it for 30 seconds and it goes away, the brain can continue to render an abstract copy of that information with which to do projections and modeling off of, right? So even after the sensory input is gone, the brain can still generate further conclusions. Right. It's that that idea of self-reflection there that you can have a meaningful experience. And then a year later, you can just have that click like, oh, this is what I think I'm supposed to do with it. And then you can make that fundamental change in your life. Yeah. 
I have like those studies where your eyeballs know what they saw, even if you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting analogy. That that would I wonder if it would work the same with like sound. Like if they played you something too fast. No, probably not, because you wouldn't be able even if you had enough time to process. If it's too fast, you didn't hear it. Or maybe you did. That'd be interesting. Well, I mean, <clears throat> for other animals, we know that sound works, right? So you can think of a very simple example as dog whistles. Um, their range of hearing is significant enough that they can pick up on subsonic and supersonic sounds and then respond to those. Um, I don't know if there's been anything done about like subliminal sound therapy or something like that for people, right? Where if you're exposed to the certain frequency of subsonic tones that you get some sort of therapeutic effect out of it. Unless, of course, you want to talk like African drum circles and stuff like that, because those are used to induce those trance-like, religiously meaningful states. Yeah, a lot. It's, I would say, rare to have religion, a religious ceremony without some type of music. And if you choose not to, it tends to be a crux. I'm thinking of like very Puritan, well, I guess Catholics. It's pretty boring. Um, and that's the point. But then, you know, I I think most religions would lean into the music, the rhythm. Well, yeah, because it's part of embodying that pattern of behavior, right? So um, Jonathan Pajau, he's a Canadian, um, he's an artist, and he works with um, religious sculptures and stuff like that, like layers of meaning, um, Mm -hmm. symbolism. And he's big on going to church is a requirement, not because you're required to go to church, but because you don't get the fully embodied experience elsewhere, right? You walk into a cathedral and like just just the shape of it, what does it do? It points to the heavens. It aligns earth to the sky right it gives you that channeling point with which to get in the mindset to do the things that whatever doctrine you follow asks you to do to get into the receptive state to have that transcendent mystical experience right and those are not totally but the i'm thinking of like the sensory cues mm-hmm. for your body there are not many, the grocery store is not shaped like that. So you would not have a, you know, um, so having that very specific shape to the building would get you in the mindset a lot easier. Well, I mean, in done it there before. just thinking of like human anatomy, right? Form is derived from function. Mm-hmm. So just like you're saying, like the, the grocery store is laid out in such a way as to facilitate the highest level of grocery store-ness, right? Or to facilitate you embodying the behaviors that make you successful at the grocery store. Same way, a church that is built in a way that 
doesn't signal to you how to embody the highest behaviors of participating in that church probably isn't visited by too many people. Right. The grocery store is designed to mindlessly walk and put things in your cart and buy them. And I guess is the point of the church Is it to pay attention to the church leader, whatever that word would be for that particular religion, or is it more personal? I think that depends on your denomination and your specific belief set. Um, so this is something that's really interesting that I'm going to bring from my historical background. Um the time period that I did most of my historical research in was colonial America. So late colonial period, um, 1700s to 1800s, essentially. Um, and what happened around mid-century, a little earlier, it's called the Great Awakening. And one of the results of the Great Awakening, you could make the argument, is Western democracy. So, um, the Anglican Church, the Church of England, Catholic light, still really hierarchical and dogmatic, right? You, you have the king as the little quasi-pope. You have the cardinals and bishops. Everyone knows where their place is. It's a little bit more free-for-all than the Catholic Church, but it's still very strictly structured, right? That's part of how the British Empire worked. That's part of why people wanted to participate, because you could know your place. You could be embedded in something bigger than you at a time where 90% of people did nothing but grow food and die, right? Um, but during the Great Awakening, we see a very large push after um, more Protestant sects. So you have the um, Scottish Presbyterians, you have the what would become the Southern Baptists, the Quakers, the Moravians, um, that all A were specifically not British in their orientation mm. and B emphasized a democratized access to moral truth, right? So that's, that's part of why people have such a bad stereotypical image of the Catholic church is because it has been established for so long and it has been an institution for so long that there is plenty of documented history of exclusivity, right? All through the Middle Ages, you would go to Catholic Church, and if you didn't speak Latin, you had no idea what they were talking about. You were just mm -hmm. expected to be blessed because you went, right? Um, whereas the Great Awakening created, maybe not created, but furthered that idea that anybody could read the Bible and find truth. Anybody mm -hmm. could reflect on their morality and find truth. And one of the downstream effects of that was a growing culture of at a time when it was still very elitist and hierarchical, if anybody can access moral truth without needing a special mediator, then anybody can access political truth without needing a special mediator, right? Kind of forcing that wedge in the door to create the foundation for Western democracy. Wow. 
I'm and we, absorbing. And we, we, we see yeah. that we see that played out very specifically in the North North Carolina regulator movement. Um, so the historians are kind of divided between whether colonial North Carolina is best understood as a sectional conflict, meaning like East Carolina and West Carolina, right? The sections. Um, and others argue that it, it's it's more complex and it's reductionist to, to see it that way. But what we do know is we do know that most of Eastern North Carolina was Anglican, was mm -hmm. predominantly British, right? And we that's reflected in the food types. If, if you look at the history of North Carolina, it's weird, but North Carolina barbecue sauces, right? The barbecue in the Eastern part was primarily the way that they would cook their meat back in England. Oh, the, is it good? <laughs> It, it, yeah, yeah, it's good. Very vinegar based, right? You know, oh, British. Yeah, like those are great. Um, yeah. And then down the Great Wagon Trail, beginning in early 1700s, we get a great migration of Pennsylvania Dutch down from New England. Well, the Dutch were mispronounced Deutsch, so they were of German heritage and background, which is why Charlotte has um, um, Christmas fests and Christmas festivals that they try and put on, right, in recognition of that. Um, we also had pockets of um, Scotch-Irish, which is why we have a Highland Games that we do in Mecklenburg County, right? Because we're honoring those traditions. Um, but the key, the key point is not only were these Germans and Irish and Scotch-Irish, they were also Presbyterian and Quakers and Moravians, all specifically not British in their persuasion. Mm-hmm. So you do kind of have that sectional demographic divide between the Eastern hierarchical Anglican, this is your place, operate within the system, so the system keeps working. And then you have all of these specifically not British peoples that were following not British religious persuasions that, and here's the great irony of the regulated rebellion, they wanted to participate in empire. They wanted to pay their taxes. They wanted to participate in that conservative framework they just wanted to have and this is where the great awakening comes in they wanted to have say in how they participated mm -hmm. right so in doing so in trying to actively participate in paying their taxes in this more conservative empire they actually created this radical notion that they should be able to and actually are qualified to dictate enough aspects of their lives to have a say so that i feel like the natural progression of that is decentralizing church mm -hmm. and the many domains of christianity um i'm not sure i'm not super familiar with a lot of other religions but they all seem to go that way where everyone's on the same page until they're not. And then the, yeah, I can't speak to that, but the taking this out of the hierarchy in the very clear cut order and making it more personal and allowing your own interpretation and others' interpretation to enter that conversation when before this was the rule that you were told and this is the rule that you followed mm -hmm. if you want to 
get to heaven, you do this. If you, you want to limit your time in purgatory, do this. And then it's sort of up to each person to decide that for themselves. Well, and I mean, just think of like what Martin Luther was trying to do. Mm-hmm. Right, with his 95 theses and everything like that. Like it, he, he was trying to increase access to that sanctified knowledge. Right. right. By printing Bibles in languages other than Latin, it makes it more accessible. By having mass in languages other than Latin, it makes it more accessible. Um, and this is something that I recognized in, in Roland Griffith's writing, in his articles. Um, is that despite the potentially overwhelming evidence that psychedelics can induce meaningful mystical experiences and those meaningful and mystical experiences are I'm sorry those meaningful and mystical experiences are descriptively no different than transcendent religious experiences and have the same psychological effects over time you would think that religious leaders would be like, oh, okay, cool. This will help us or we could facilitate or whatever. But there tends to be some of that pushback there. And I think I know why. And it goes back to that increasing access to the sanctimonious truth. Um, When you have a system or an institution, everyone that operates within that system or institution is incentivized to maintain it, Mm -hmm. right? Um, Now, there is some value in that. If we allow all of our institutions to crumble, who knows how much undue suffering will unleash on the world as people try and read build new institutions and systems and structures, right? Um, But anything that could, going back to our psychological discussion, increase neuroplasticity and reduce the rigidity of the framework imposed by that system, therefore poses a threat to that system. Because while they might be trying to better it, and they could arguably, in fact, better it, they do so by changing it. And mm-hmm. change change is scary. Humans, by nature, avoid change unconsciously, and more often than not, we do what we can. More people are happy living with a known trauma than taking a risk, because that risk might be an unknown trauma, as equal as it might be a blessing. Mm-hmm. It is. It takes less energy to continue as you are than it does to try something new, no matter how hard it is what you're currently doing, seems. Well, and, and uh, so you do find people resistant to change. It's so weird, though, too. So I, I, I told one of my former students today, I approached her in the hallway, and I noticed she had gotten accepted into a couple different colleges. And I asked her, you know, which one she was committing to, and she hadn't committed yet. So I asked her what she wanted to study or what she was interested in, and she couldn't give me an answer. Um, It's like, well, A, that's not going to do a whole lot of good to go to a college not knowing what you want to do because you're just going to piss away four years of your life, rack up debt, and not get anything out of it. Um, But B, um, 
And I told her it may seem like a bit of a jump because it is, but bear with me, right? So primarily mosquitoes use two senses to orient themselves in the world. They detect water vapor and they detect carbon dioxide. So if at any point there's not a sufficient input of either of those, they make a random alteration to their flight pattern until they find something right right? how that reflects with human psychology is if you're on a path that you know leads you nowhere literally picking any direction even at random is a better choice because there's that probability that you might get those market signals to continue moving forward in a healthy direction it might be bad there might be pain you might have to suffer through some things but if the path that you're on is known, if you're the mosquito and you're not detecting water vapor or carbon dioxide, you know there's nothing in front of you to go get. Mm-hmm. So even a randomly decided change in direction is better than continuing course. I do that with flipping a coin when I don't know what to pick. And then whatever it lands on, I, I feel relieved that it was on that or disappointed that it was on that. And then make my decision based on my reaction to yeah, that's like okay, the coin said this. It's like oh man, then I then I know, which I don't know why I have to do that in order to get to what I was feeling, but it works pretty well. Just picking, just letting someone like okay, this is what I'm doing, and then seeing if that feels right or not. Okay, here's a question for you: mm-hmm. What if your coin flip is a metaphor for religious tradition? Hmm. So you commit to that, see if it feels right, or if you feel like mm, no. Well, no, see, you flip the coin. So you consult the texts, you go to church, whatever. You look for your sign, receive that sign, and then make your decision based on how you react to that sign. So you flip your coin, you see its heads or tails, and you gauge your pleasure or disappointment. Mm-hmm. Reflect on those and then make your decision, which could be totally different than the coin flip, depending on how you interpret your responses to that. Same thing. If you're at a crossroads in life, um, major fundamental change, right? So anything from birth of a child to death of a parent to joining the military, anything sufficiently destabilizing enough to where your psychological framework and constructs for how you fit in the world and how to navigate through the world aren't sufficient anymore. They need to be updated. What do you do? You consult the text, you go to church, you have your meditation session, whatever spiritual but not religious thing that you engage in um, to quiet your mind in some capacity or at least align your attention in such a way that you can use an arbitrary sign to gauge how you feel how you honestly feel about something and then Mm -hmm. use that new information to make an informed decision from there right so to clarify the arbitrary sign comes from that meditation session or the religious text you just read or either that or your you're, you're using it as your way to
I'll say increased receptivity. Mm-hmm. Right. So for you, <clears throat> have you ever went to go flip the coin and then said, you know what? I'm not going to. Sometimes if usually though, it's because I figure out what I want on my own. Like, all right, I don't need the coin, okay. but I've never yeah. just gone without knowing. But it still stands to reason then that that could be by channeling your attention through that behavior or habit. Like that is what's aligning your attention in such a way to think about the decision or think about the problem or attend to the issue sufficiently enough to feel good about your decision. Yes. Right. It's so like a little ritual to and, confirm. Right. Um, so applying that same idea to say the people that read their Bible verse every day, mm-hmm. what is it doing? It's giving them those little nuggets that they can use when they just have that terrible day at work and you can attend in the right way using those as your little coin flips. Oh, how should I respond to this? Or someone sent me a nasty email or these kids just aren't listening in my classroom today. I'm about to quit. Day ends, head in hands. I'm not sure if I'm going to show up tomorrow. And then you hear that little Bible verse in the back of your head, similar to your coin flip. And you sit down and you can refocus and re-engage and make your decision based on that input. Mm -hmm. Right. So, um, and as far as the sign thing goes, a couple things. First of all, as a teacher, I've had those days where I wasn't sure I was going to show up again in the morning, mm-hmm. um, especially these past couple years. Um, but guaranteed within 24 hours on the front or back side of that day, I can find an experience with a student that reminds me of why I do what I do. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, now, that only happens if you look for it. right if you're not attending to things in the right way then you'll miss it um another perfect example i left work friday and i ran home really quick and then i went to go um handle something and i was going to go pick up some workout equipment right and it was just going to be like an impulse buy type of thing i left my wallet at home so when i realized that i got frustrated at first i was really upset and then i stopped and i was like that's my sign. Not today. Oh, right. Maybe the next day, maybe Sunday, maybe today, whatever. Right. So having that method, that technique, that framework with which to take a step back and reflect and use that reflection to inform your decision. Mm -hmm. I think that's what I was, was, I was getting to earlier. Um, And I do think it's helpful here for our listeners to recognize that I think a lot of people are put off by religion because they think it demands a belief in something supernatural, right? There has to be like the blind clockmaker or the active omnipotent being that has a plan for everything. When in actuality, I think most of the value from any organized religion comes from the frameworks and mindsets the patterns of behavior that it asks you to do that have predictable outcomes. I have to agree with that because 
I think religion is one of definitely one of the earliest places and possibly like one of the only places where behavior is modeled this is what you do like explicitly when you're an adult person because you're like you don't get that in school you get this is math this is science and then like sprinkled in some like here's what you do as an adult but as far as like how should you spend your money what should you value what should you prioritize it's kind of the only place that people are teaching those lessons which is you have to learn them somewhere mm-hmm. it well, will and- be from tv or from your parents or from places that might not have your best interests at heart. Well, and and I think you touch on something important with the values there, right? And that, that goes back to the is ought problem, just because we know how something is doesn't mean we have any clue on how it ought to be. Mm -hmm. Um, Science can tell us a lot about how things are, how the world is, but it doesn't tell us what to do with that information. We have to approach that with a certain set of, axiomatic presuppositions of how to handle that data right what it can be used for um that's where philosophy comes in right and that's that's why you get really brilliant people like sam harris and richard dawkins that are you know the the leaders of the new atheist movement um that try to make an argument now richard dawkins is a unique case because he's looks more strictly at biology um, and again, he's brilliant. Same thing with Sam Harris, but Sam Harris has a lot of input. Like he, he wrote a book called the moral landscape where he tries to lay out that you don't need a religious framework to be able to have a set of values. Right. And he makes a fairly convincing argument, but it seems to me that it's all still predicated on the fact, right. So the, the argument he makes is that, <clears throat> Think of hell as the absolute worst existence someone can have. 100% undo suffering, mm-hmm. something like that, right? And it's our natural inclination to move from that to a higher place that involves less suffering. Well, even that belief is predicated on the fact that that suffering is bad, mm. right? You have to have that pre-existing value in order to, to do that. Otherwise, like what's to say that that is quote unquote bad obviously we have that instinct that it is bad right only psychopaths enjoy um inflicting suffering or pain on others to receive some sort of benefit out of it um right but that that's still that fundamental presupposition that we shouldn't cause suffering to others there's no scientific data that suggests that that's how it should be. That brings two things to mind for me. The first one is that, well, the main issue is that he, that theory that he put out was in a book, right? Which is not going to get people when they're five, six, seven, you know what I'm saying? Like, mm-hmm you have to have values as a child and they have to come from somewhere. And if you're writing, you know, nonfiction, high school, college level books, 
it's too late. <laughs> uh, you're going to get people who either already were feeling that way or already have those things and are now getting them confirmed um, through someone who's very articulate and, you know, uh, and they can further inform the ideas that they were already feeling. Um, but without, you've got to get them while they're young. Um, and then my second thought was when things go wrong, like there was uh, during the Black Plague, the flagellants who would march into town and have a glorious time physically harming themselves for people um, to avoid the plague. Like, oh, good, the flagellants are here. Uh, the irony of that is the flagellants were spreading the plague. Um, <laughs> ideally, no one should come to your village. Quarantine, social distance, we know this now. Um, and people do try that. Um, and then the same thing with inflicting on others during the Black Plague, there was um, one of like the worst like Jewish persecutions mm -hmm. with the pogroms, which the same thing, okay, we need to inflict suffering on the Jews in order to save ourselves from the Black Plague, which again, also didn't work because they had to travel to do that. And they all got sick and died. Well, and there's also that <clears throat> retribution mm -hmm. aspect, right? So from what I know of those those times is a lot of the anti-Semitism arose because the Jews were already ostracized. Mm -hmm. So they kept to themselves, mm -hmm. right? Just like you're saying that the, the, the pogroms, pogroms, however it's pronounced, um, generally only had foot traffic for the people that lived there which means just like you're saying the, the irony of that is they didn't contract anything because they didn't come into contact with people outside of their circles it appears right? as though they were spared yeah even though so, they were they were spared because they were persecuted into their own sectors yeah the only people they saw were their family because they were the only people who would tolerate them um, and now that I think about it, it was kind of the same thing in America with like the Asian American hate crime spike during COVID because like China virus, whatever. Um, so there were people doing that even like, and that's at that point we knew it solved nothing, but some moral, some like, I have to get even some eye for an eye thing deep inside of us said, you know, we need to do hate crimes on anyone who even looks Asian, whether or not they are, whether or not they're Chinese, whether or not they're like anyone. And uh, I think this, I don't know if it's still up, but there's definitely like four or five months in a row where it was like fit 500% um, compared to other months. And I think it's maintained uh, still pretty high since then um, as a result well, of people feeling like they have to do something to stop this bad thing. Well, and and this is something I try and get my students to think about, <clears throat> especially now that I'm back in the civics and government class, and it's particularly germane for those topics. Um, it's really easy for people to identify the locus or nexus of evil outside of ourselves. Mm -hmm. right how and this is um alexander solzhenitsyn he wrote the gulag archipelago um <clears throat> this is one of his main points that he makes in the book and i'm gonna summarize it because i don't have it in front of me although i can see the book from where i'm sitting um he more or less says how great would it be how easy would it be if we could just find evil out there mm 
then we could isolate it. We could deal with it. We could handle it. But we are all equally capable of great deeds, and we are all equally capable of horrific deeds, because the line between good and evil cuts through the heart of every man, right? And we see that a lot, especially in contemporary politics, is that um, they're the bad guys, so vote me, mm-hmm. which... Like I guess is persuasive to voters that are concerned about their well-being and in legitimate things that they should be concerned about providing their fa- for their family stability, all that stuff. Um, <clears throat> but one of the byproducts of it is that if you can identify the nexus of evil in somebody else, you can very easily justify any number of horrible things to do to that person because yeah. the ends justify the means. Yeah, this made me think about like after World War II, the whole world was like, what do we do with all these Germans who are mm-hmm. Nazis? And the answer was like nothing. They were fine. They were normal humans and they didn't do it again. <laughs> so, but it was tough for people to reconcile that a perfectly average human being could have been, you know, the doorman at Auschwitz. Mm-hmm. And by chance he was hired for that job but the it was all circumstance like it was well and and not just that from um, from inside of them and it's not it's not apples to apples it's apples to oranges comparison so i want to be very clear here that i am not downplaying any of the atrocities that happened at the concentration camps but you could make the very real argument that for the average German that was drafted or conscripted into the military and placed as a guard, that they were just as much a prisoner there as the prisoners were. Right. Because what do you, you know, what do you do? You say, Hey officer, this isn't a good idea. I don't feel good about this. And one of two things happens. You either get fired and your family starves or you get shot on the spot. Right. I think what even happened more was as a method of survival, they said, this is the right thing to do. It has to be. And you can brainwash yourself into it and you can brainwash yourself right out of it. As soon as the Americans march in, you're like, actually, I changed my mind, which they all did. There's, I mean, there's are still Nazis in Germany, but the entire country didn't have to get hung for this to be fixed. And I think there's a similar analogy in, um, Like you'll notice, especially with like more conservative Christians, the idea that like disability or like congenital disability or like chromosomal disorders, things that you're born with are something that like God cursed you with because your parents did something wrong and it's a sign. It's really tough for those people to accept that it could happen to you tomorrow. Like you could get Huntington's disease and your brain melts and you get dementia, every type of dementia possible. Parkinson's, everything with Huntington's, and die. And the it's much easier to equate it to something moral. They did something yeah. wrong. They did something right. I did something right. I don't have it. They did something wrong. That's why they have it. Yeah, but that's um, that it could happen to you. That started in <clears throat> at least in Western Europe in the 1500s with the 
movement that would end up fostering the Puritans and the pilgrims to come over to the United States. There was this idea of providential justification, right? Mm. Where you can look at the fact that we are still here as a culture, as proof in the pudding that we did something right or that we're blessed in some kind of way, right? And that kind of got translated into that myth of American exceptionalism. And yeah. I want I, I want to be careful here because as a historian, um, I do th- believe in American exceptionalism, but not in the fact that we are fundamentally exceptional by virtue of who we are, but that if you look at the historical rankings of like the French Revolution or the Russian Revolution or any of the other major ones in the era of revolutions, that ours is the one that stuck. Mm-hmm. Right? We have the oldest original constitution in the constitutional world right and to some degree like that that is exceptional by virtue of its results not by virtue of its innate origins right but but that idea of american exceptionalism as virtue of its innate origins right we can go back to the 1600s with james winthrop who's writing like america will be as a city on a hill a shining beacon for all of the masses to come to because we're inherently better over here type of thing, right? It's, to me, if it's aspirational, there's nothing wrong with that. But when you're justifying things with that type of reasoning, this is why I deserve to have a house and the person on the street doesn't, I did something right, they did something wrong. Like when it, if you're saying, you know, I do all of these things right, I should have a house, that's fine. When you're justifying what you have, whether it's your health, money, whatever, um, your ability to feel religious, comparing, you know, you can't use it as justification, but it's great as a motivator. Yeah, but isn't, isn't all meaning that we layer, right? So our whole metaphysical world, isn't all of that created as justification post hoc for our behaviors? I want to say it was, I want to say Bertrand Russell, but I'm utterly convinced that that's wrong. I just can't, no other names popping in my head, but it was a philosopher, relatively contemporary, um, that made that claim that all philosophy is just people trying to justify their own biases, Mm. right? Maybe it was Nietzsche. That does sound like something Nietzsche would say. He was pretty anti-philosopher. But and, and I think I think the psychological I think the psychological literature corroborates that. Right? We've already talked about free will before and how your um, neuronal networks prime themselves for action with specific decisions before you're even consciously aware that you have to make that decision. Right. The um, I'm going to botch the terminology because I haven't looked at it recently, but the essentially the electric charge within your neural pathways drops to prime them for mm-hmm. conducting that positive um, electrochemical charge down down the system. And we're not aware of that. I think it's some like that drop takes place like 500 microseconds before we're aware of a decision. And then we can start consciously interceding at about 250 microseconds or something like that. Um, 
If you're but, hooked up to the right machine, a doctor can tell you've just had a thought before yeah, you've had it. Um, but what we do have is we have um, inhibitors, mm-hmm. right? We have, um, who was it? He called it negative free will, right? That we might not be consciously aware of our body priming ourselves to make our decisions, but we can stop it. Right, our body can prime, and we can consciously choose to not go through with that action. Oh, right. No matter what, if your body primes the wrong thing, or what you consciously say is the wrong thing, is that what you mean, or do you mean it subconsciously as well that you say, "No, I'm not going to think that." No, no, I'm I'm talking about the the conscious intervention. Right. Okay. Right. So, right. so just because our, our body's trying to make decisions before we're consciously aware, aware of it doesn't mean that we're set in stone. Doesn't mean that our path is set, so to speak. Um, yeah, definitely. And with that in mind, like it would make sense that most philosophy is a way to justify our own behaviors. Right. Now, maybe not just straight up, I can act however I want to. And then here's why that's okay. Although there are examples of that. I'm thinking of like Michel Foucault and other known um, philosophers that pushed for very questionable things like the elimination of, you know, consensual sex age limits and stuff like that. Um, Yeah, oof. But um. Maybe. Maybe to some degree, that's another thing of what religion is, right? And and I'm not thinking of like the, you act a certain type of way and you did that unconsciously, not aware of what you were responding to. So now you have to try and reason out why that happened, right? As a way to, to not justify making sure that your action was okay, but justifying like, here's why that happened type of thing. Um, but in the sense of, behaviors with predictable outcomes. If you embody these virtues in this type of way, these are the predictable outcomes. Meaning, if you act this way, here's the justification for it. And that's been tested over time, right? Mm-hmm. So thinking of just the, the Christian tradition, right? Um, you can take it at face value and say that that's like 6,000 years of religious cultural evolution testing the predictability of those behaviors against reality because if they didn't work they wouldn't have canonized them right at least to some degree well the real ones well i say real i mean the ones that you can trace back (laughs) i guess not the you know um like i'm thinking of like generosity like those kind of big broad yes you should be generous um you should be nice to people well and and well not to have too big of a crossover episode with free will and religion and depression and anxiety and all of the other topics that we've talked about but um again the psychological literature corroborates that well, let me let me just start here. People that are 
diagnosed with major depressive disorder tend to use the terms I and me at a higher frequency than those that aren't. Those that aren't tend to use the words we and us at a higher frequency than I and me. What that suggests is that we can become depressed when we're focused too much on the self. Right. And not on the self is in like self betterment or who am I type thing. Um, but once you start comparing yourself with the achievements or the revenue or whatever of others, right, then you can start entering that mentality of why them, but not me. Mm-hmm. Maybe I'm doomed to be this way forever. If so, why bother, right? And you can see that negative feedback cycle, right? That cognitive trap that and gets people into the depths of depression. Um, right. And I then, feel bad because I am bad because yeah, I don't you, have as then, much money as this and guy. And you internalize that. Then you struggle to get out of bed that next day. And then you miss your workout. Now you feel fat too. And it all just makes that self-esteem plummet with it to where you're kind of, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy type thing, right? Right. Um, But then you factor in that. And I don't want to be too bold with this claim because I don't have any data to back it up, at least not right in front of me. But why do most people commit suicide? Because they feel like if they didn't wake up tomorrow, the world would keep turning. Mm-hmm. No one would miss them. They're not needed. Right? How many stories have you heard of people refraining from taking their own life because they needed to feed their dog? Or their elderly neighbor needed help getting their groceries in? Or something, some act of service intervened and made them feel like they could be depended on, made them feel like they could be of value to people, of service to people. And it is that recognition of serving others that has that therapeutic value to help pull people out of major depressive disorder. Right. Which is where the community of a religious group of any kind, of any size, has, it's a protective factor regardless of the religion, regardless of how good you are at it, how much you actually believe being a part of it. Well, in in one of the factors that the doctor would say this would prevent. Yeah. yeah, yeah. A researcher would say Um, this could prevent suicide. Well, and, and not just that too. I think it's one step further, right? So maybe... Maybe the ancients recognized that, right? Because just like you were saying, like almost all of us, except for people that are legitimately psychopathic, know that we need to be nice to people. Well, why? Why is that an innate value? Well, because the religion tells me or whatever, or like Sam Harris would say, because like it would make sense to move to less stages of suffering and to help people along the way, right? To not cause undue suffering to others. That generosity piece you were just talking about, um, there's therapeutic value there. So what if, what if the religious truth was canonized because they had tested those behaviors against reality for a long enough generations to recognize the fundamental truth there? 
And it is that religious truth is describing that psychological truth. The tradition and the culture surrounding whatever religion is the group first. And no matter what kind of icing or sprinkles you put on top, it's all about being in the group. And then what is every, all, all of the group agrees to partake in these particular behaviors to the best of their ability, sharing, protecting others. Um, well, I mean, okay, well, think, think about it this way. Go, go back like 50,000 years, right? Um, We're chasing mammoths off of cliffs. Yeah, how do you explain to someone that you need to share with your neighbor or you need to share with your brother or you need to share with your cousin or your aunt or something like that, right? Oh, well, because the psychological data suggests that we can pull you out of that major depressive disorder. Like, like, like they didn't have that framework with which to understand it. They didn't even, assuming that they recognized real effects of behaviors and used terms that they had with which to describe them. So here's an example. Think of someone 50,000 years ago, part of a hunter-gatherer tribe, um, you know, extended family units, something like that. And someone is selfish. They're selfish, so they don't contribute as much, so they're not included as much. Now they have a basis with which to enter major depressive disorder mm -hmm. because they're not of service. They're not brought into that community. They're not included. They're excluded, you know, whatever terms you want to use. From that family's perspective uncle timmy got possessed yeah, uncle timmy went you know like classical mad not like mad as in angry God. but mad as in loopy right yeah. he became cursed because he got gripped with that selfishness and that selfishness turned to rage and that rage turned into violence against the family unit and hurt everybody and now we're weaker as a whole because of it mm -hmm. so that's why you should be good to people because it staves off whatever evil entities that they have well now that just so happens to coincide with the psychological truth that we know that major depressive disorder there are behaviors and cognitive frameworks that you can adopt that make major depressive disorder more susceptible to you or you more susceptible to it rather right and most depression episodes can be treated to some capacity with cognitive behavioral therapy by restructuring the framework with which someone understands the world you can modify their behaviors to start getting those proper serotonergic responses and healthy sleep cycles and everything to re-baseline their psyche right so there's there's it i think it's the same fundamental truth just described two different ways i'm thinking of that exact scenario from a behavior perspective as well which would mean the person is selfish that morning. They're excluded from lunch. That feels bad. They are punished for that. And then they try something new, not being selfish. That feels good. They're rewarded for that. They have learned some lesson that they're able to share with others, which one of the great things about humans is we have rule governed behavior, which I 
my secret suspicion is animals also have rule governed behavior because my dog is afraid of the most random things, which he has never been bitten by the vacuum, but he's afraid of it anyways. So um, anyways, rule governed behavior is something that you haven't actually experienced, but that you have verbally either made yourself in your mind or someone has told you verbally, this will happen if this happens. So I don't have to be selfish for a morning and experience that myself. I just have to be told that. And then I'm able to change my behavior based on this new rule, which is why humans do really weird things that hurt themselves because they're following a rule versus actual contingency that's in front of them. That's why I think dogs are afraid of vacuums and lawnmowers and random things that have never actually hurt them. They just have this thought that this thing is bad. They've been told this back in humans now they've been told this and they base themselves they base what they do next based on what they've been told yeah um two things on that first of all that's what i tell my students all the time right because i I do i bring a lot of psychology into my history english and civics classes um because that's the whole point of the humanities right is to better understand the human experience Um, and something that I tell them all the time is, right, we require a social environment to be embedded in to understand the boundaries of behavior. We all have those intuitive, okay, well, theft is bad. Well, why is theft bad? Well, you don't know that from experience. 90% of people haven't stolen something and gotten caught, and that's why they don't steal. But 100% of people know somebody that has, or they know people that have been the victim side of theft. Right. So we have those social cues that we use to inform our rule governed behavior, like you say. Um, the second thing that I was thinking of, this is why I was chuckling while you explained it, is it sounds exactly like one of the explanations that my pilots, one of my pilots when I was stationed in Germany, gave me for why the institution of the military and I'm certain many archaic institutions have archaic rules that we follow just because. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so he told me a story. There's a scientist, right? This scientist studied monkeys. So what he did is he took a cage full of monkeys and he put a bushel of bananas in the middle of the cage, right? Monkeys like bananas. So they all climbed down and they went for the monkeys and he took a fire hose and he freaking sprayed them all down, right? Mm -hmm. After about a week or so of that, all the monkeys learned to not go for the bananas because they didn't like getting hit with the fire hose. Mm -hmm. Pretty understandable. Well, then he takes an old monkey out and he puts a new monkey in right? Puts the bushel of bananas in. None of the old monkeys go for it because they know the new monkey doesn't know. So he goes for the bananas. As soon as he tries to, all of the other old monkeys beat the shit out of him and say no, right? Because they know they're going to get hosed down. (laughs) Right. Right. And so they're trying to prevent that. Well, after so long, you transition enough old monkeys out to where there's nothing but new monkeys in the cage. Not a single one of them has ever been hit with the fire hose, but every single one of them has gone through that hazing process of not going for the bananas. So they all unconsciously and subconsciously know that to go for the bananas is the worst sin that you could make. Right. But none of them knows why. They have zero firsthand experience with it whatsoever. That is a great example. And one, because technically, only humans have rule governed behavior because only humans have verbal behavior. I have never believed this because I have had pets. <laughs> they know <laughs> they make rules. And I don't know at what point down like the, like do lizards have rule governed behavior? I don't know. 
you could probably prove it. I could certainly make a lizard look like he has rule governed behavior. I don't know if it would actually yeah, work. But is that rule governed behavior or, or is no. that just conditioning? It would be. Um, so even if I saw someone lower down, what's the word I'm like, like evolutionary chain, I guess, like a older, a not as brain brainy mammal. Um, there's the, a word the, for that. The not phrase that I'm thinking of is um, lower levels of consciousness. Yeah. There right. So, the so they, yeah, they, they can think they do rudimentary behaviors and stuff like that, but are right. they, do they question their purpose in life? There does <laughs> right. come a point where, and somewhere down that you stop having verbal behavior and you stop having rule governed behavior. Um, I think pigeons are on the, the low side. Pigeons are not there, um, but parrots might be, you know? So the, yeah, it exists all throughout the animal kingdom, definitely in humans. And it's one of the hardest, it's the worst and the best phenomenon <laughs> because it makes no sense. And it's the reason why people do things that are harmful to themselves and they, you know, stay on Twitter, they ostracize themselves from their family, they do all of these things that someone has told them, they've been told is right. And, um, but then also it makes it so that I don't jump out a window because I've been told that would hurt and that's enough for me. <laughs> so it's very useful. It saves a lot of time. Um, it makes sure that we don't have to start from zero. Um, yeah. Well, and, that, and that's what I keep coming back to in, in most of our discussions and most of the things that I think about. Like I even explain political parties this way to my to my students as heuristics. Right. What is a political party? Well, it's a heuristic. Instead of saying, I believe X, Y, Z, blah, 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 blah. You have this shortened term that's packed with various layers of meaning that you can convey as a snapshot, as a low resolution. Here's the synapsis of me. Right. Same way with religion. Um, like people spend an entire lifetime dissecting the major religious texts and they don't even master a single one of them, right? So they're increasingly complex. But if you say, I'm a Christian, it has all those various different layers of pop culture meaning associated with it. So you don't have to lay out your whole theology every single time you meet a new person. But not just that, is it a heuristic that way? It's also a heuristic for embodying psychological behaviors, right? You can say, what would a Christian do? And you're implying that there's boundaries and set limits to what you're quote unquote allowed to do because we have this incredibly dense book that has all of this metaphorical truth bounced off of reality over thousands of years that these behaviors work to some degree. Right. right? Yeah. I think the like taking it all the way back, the evolutionary perspective for me is the best way to interpret everything that we end up doing today. Cause it, it always has a route back to what were we doing when we were chasing mammoths off of cliffs to eat. And there, it doesn't take much of an analogy to get to like, why do I use Twitter even when it makes me upset? And it's because I like feeling part of a group. I like having attention. Mm -hmm. I like getting likes. And that, you know, it's that simple. It's not that simple. 
there's more to it. But well, at the end of the day, it, it is that simple. It, it is that simple. But what complicates it is that we have technology that is developed faster than our evolutionary path has kept up with that is aimed at that deepest reptilian part of our brain triggering those dopamine responses right Um, and it is overwhelming for most people because precisely that it is so hyper tuned and hyper focused and we don't have an evolutionary adaptation to it yet in fact i think that's what a lot of our underlying psychological issues as a western culture are are vestigial um threat mechanisms evolutionarily inherited threat mechanisms that are no longer relevant in most social contexts Mm -hmm. we got about a minute ish left anything you want to touch on or any last words i think this was a great part two to spirituality and religion i feel still hungry for some afterlife talk yeah I was because i say, didn't I'm get to talk about ghosts. totally on board for part three um, yeah and we can center more on afterlife because there is something else about roland griffith's work about dealing with terminally ill cancer patients that would fit in really nicely with that too yeah because i think as far as we've been in groups we've been preparing bodies for the afterlife um from what we can tell most yeah. people didn't just drop where they were and their group left them at they least for about the last ten thousand years there's pretty significant evidence to support that yeah right why was everyone doing that what's up with that it's a weird thing to do it takes a lot of time yeah. so i would love to discuss that okay well viewers tune in next time for part three the afterlife yeah get to hear about sky burials well yeah. maybe not <laughs>